What a blessed opportunity it is this morning to gather in the way that we are, having done so, of course, with a desire to offer the consideration and heartfelt worship of our heart, of course, unto God. Worship, of course, literally means acts of reverence directed to God, and that's our goal over the next little while this morning to specifically engage in these things that God has commanded with a goal that He will be honored, of course, by that which we do. We're thankful for the presence of each and every individual, our membership, our visitors alike. and We want everyone to feel as if we can gather for the purpose of offering our worship unto God. As you may notice on the walls behind me, we're going to consider a lesson for the next few moments touching a subject I've entitled Bible Silence. As we do that, you may at least at first thought wonder what will be the thrust or at least what will be the point of discussion. But I don't believe it will be too long before we understand pretty clearly what this involves. As we transition to the next slide, we'll look at some of the features and things to be seen on this introductory set of statements that are in fact to follow. In particular, you'll notice here, isn't it true that what you hold in your lap, that Word of God, it is wholly unlike anything else. Extraordinarily unique, amazingly powerful, because it came from God. No individual, no matter how scholarly he may have been, wrote that book in the sense that he, it was his thoughts, his ideas. And you and I are commanded to appreciate that it's only by that Word that we can live pleasingly before God. And so it is. In Second Peter 1, verse number 3, all things that pertain to life and godliness have been revealed. We have not to worry or perhaps ponder, is there something we're missing? It's all here. Now it is true, we're commanded to rightly divide it, 2 Timothy 2.15. And of course, it is in so doing that you and I, as we apply it, will be made thoroughly equipped before God, 2 Timothy 3, verse 17. Now keeping those thoughts in mind, I'd like to invite you to consider this business about silence. What happens when someone or some group is silent on a subject? Well, maybe that leaves those who are in fact listening a bit of concern. How should I react? What should I do in light of the fact they didn't say anything? Well, to develop that, look at the next slide. Let's try to define what we mean by this matter of biblical silence. And I'd like to develop it, perhaps slowly and systematically in this way. Isn't it true that there are times in the Word of God when He specifically and very directly gave positive commands? Let me invite you to consider these examples. In Genesis 6 verse 14, God told Noah, build thee an ark. There was something very clear that Noah was to do. No misunderstanding. I've got an ark to build. Well, that's all I mean by those occasions on which God gave specific and positive commandments. But that was in that ancient era. In this modern era, we also know He's given us a commandment. Many could have been selected as an example. But Romans 12, verse number 9. Isn't it true you and I in the church today are commanded to abhor that which is evil? My friend, I'd suggest if we're going to please God, that is not an option. We have to detest and loathe anything that's evil. That means not only to make sure we are clear of it in our life, but to give no approval to any such thing. 
Now, those again are commandments God has stated. But isn't it true there are other occasions on which He has stated His command from a negative viewpoint? That is to say, here is something not to do. Look at this example. I've asked you to consider Exodus, 12, Exodus 20, verse 15. Many examples might have been listed, but look at that one. Thou shalt not steal. There was God's will, but stated from a viewpoint of something to avoid. You don't steal. No matter what the possible reasons may be, no matter what the particular circumstances may develop, it does not matter. You don't steal if you're going to please God. Now, that was true in the Old Testament era. What about today? We again know that there are times God has stated His will from that same negative viewpoint. You and I know we're not supposed to steal either. But I chose a different example. Don't forsake the assembly. Now, I chose that as an example. There's the word not. Here is something I must not do if I'm going to please God. I never, ever willfully choose to miss the assemblies. But again, God's will is perfectly clear. It's not easily misunderstood. But with all that in mind, look at the bottom of that slide. What are you to do in those situations when some particular issue arises, and as far as you can tell, the Bible is silent about this? I've listed a few examples for your consideration. Suppose there is a gentleman, maybe he's a farmer, and as the weather forecast comes before him, he notices Friday it's going to be a miserable weather day. But Saturday and Sunday look absolutely glorious. I've got a crop to get in. I tell you what I think I'll do. I'll get the family together. We'll have a Bible reading and we'll take the Lord's Supper on Friday. And that way I can work all day long Sunday and I won't have to miss any crop business and go to church services. What would you and I say to a situation like that? The Bible doesn't say anything about taking the Lord's Supper on Friday. So is it okay or not? You could see the situation the man's in. Before we're finished today, we'll try to answer it, by the way. But look at some of the next examples, and you could list many additional ones as well. Suppose there's a missionary and maybe a hurricane has passed through this area, devastating the building and perhaps many of the homes of the members. Suppose he suggests, why don't you folks in America have a big rummage sale, a yard sale, and give us all the particulars, all the rewards and benefits, if you please, off that. We can use it to rebuild our building. Would it be right for the Pippin Church of Christ to have a gigantic yard sale here in the parking lot? Would that be appropriate? The Bible doesn't say a word about a yard sale. Is it wrong or is it not? That's a good question. What about a third one? Consider this one. There's a lot of interest, of course, this day and time in which we encourage attendance on things. Knowing lots of religious groups, in fact, order their services in such a way that they are particularly palatable and favorable for large numbers of people coming. Let's face it, fruit of the vine and unleavened bread are more or less tasteless in many ways. They're kind of bland, at least, in the perspective of many people. Why don't we do this? What if someone had this brilliant idea? Why don't we put chocolate chip cookies and milk for the elements of the Lord's Supper? Now, we'll have the other two as well for those that want it. 
But we'll have two more elements, cookies and milk. I believe a lot of people like that. I believe, in fact, a lot of people might love that idea. Should we do it or should we not? The Bible says not a word about putting cookies and milk on the Lord's Supper. So is it wrong or not? We're beginning to see what's meant by Bible silence. Maybe one more, and it's the last one. Suppose, again, someone has this interesting idea. You know what? Our singing, at least some congregations might say, is not the best in the world. We don't have a whole group of trained singers that can sing soprano, tenor, alto, and bass. Why don't we do this? To help keep everybody in melody, to help keep everyone in rhythm, why don't we have a drum and a guitar over in the corner? Now, I want you to know that's not a part of the worship. All we're going to do is use it to keep everybody in time. And it can also help make sure we get the pitch right. And it'll play all along the time the song is, and therefore it'll just make everything better. The singing will be better. The worship will be more lively. The Bible doesn't say a single word about a guitar and a drum as a part of worship. So is it wrong or not? May I offer you this thought, this subject of Bible silence touches a lot of particulars and it's a subject we really need to know about. Let's go to the next slide and continue our development. As we try to define what it is we're discussing, I've simply asked you to notice the Bible nowhere specifically said anything either for or against cookies and milk, a yard sale, or those other examples I listed. But the idea is this. It raises a question with which you and I must give consideration. When the Bible doesn't specifically list one of these things or anything else, does that mean that God approves of it? Or does that mean that God condemns it? All of our eternity may well rest on the answer to this. We must know the answer. There are many individuals that you and I encounter our friends, our neighbors, our associates who are a part of religious organizations. And this is the very matter that in many instances separates the appreciation that you and I have from the appreciation that they have. As you and I come to the bottom of that slide, let's begin to ponder what should our answer be. I'm going to develop the rest of the lesson from two, two perspectives. One, using some Old Testament considerations. And then the bulk of the lesson will be New Testament applications. Let's go first into the Old Testament as we go to the next slide. Would you revisit with me a scenario, a scene that occurred in the book of Leviticus? And as we look with care at it, we will ask very interestingly about the application of biblical silence. It begins like this. In the book of Leviticus, we remember, of course, as the book suggests, that that was instructions given primarily to the Levites, but of course all Israel was blessed and benefited by it. But on this occasion, beginning in verse number 1 of Leviticus 10, the following statements are found. And Nadab and Abihu, the sons of Aaron, took either of them his censer, and put fire therein, and put incense thereon, and offered strange fire before the Lord, which he commanded them not." Let's stop at that point and note this. Here was a scenario in which these two sons of Aaron, his two oldest boys, I might suggest, 
It was they who had begun to officiate at the services. And as they did that, remember, that was a time when you offered sacrifices, you offered incense, and that was the particular of this point. The verse says, They took either of them his censer, and put fire therein, and put incense thereon, and offered strange fire before the Lord. Several things I might ask you to note. First, they were at the right place. They had come to the tabernacle because that's where the altar of incense was. They came to the church building in essence. But not only that, they offered. They took the time and invested the particulars to make an offering to God. But He didn't like it. May you and I appreciate the fact just because you offer something to God doesn't mean He necessarily takes it. Many examples of that are in the Bible, but the particular here goes back to this. Notice they used fire, they used incense, both of which were commanded by God. God did tell them that they needed to use both incense and fire. The issue wasn't in the matter of that per se. The issue comes in what's next. The fire that they did offer. The Bible calls it strange fire. And at that point, you and I have no doubt but wonderment as to, well, what's meant by fire? It and fire? Fire? What's different about one fire from another? The last part of the verse is monumental. It's colossal. Let me read it again. God, what do you mean by strange fire? It says, which He commanded them not. Several chapters earlier, there had been statements as to the fact the fire was to be taken from a particular place, namely off of the altar of burnt offering. It would appear that Nadab and Abihu, for what reason we know not, chose to take the fire from some other source. Maybe they took it off a campfire. Maybe they took it off some other particular which we are not told. The point is it doesn't matter. God hadn't commanded relative to this. Could I say that differently? He had been silent on the kind of fire that they were then using. Silent. Now that takes us back to the lesson today. How then was this matter in biblical silence to be viewed? Isn't it obvious from the next verse? Because verse number 2 says, And there went out from the Lord fire and devoured them, and they died before the Lord. Isn't it true that earlier when God had specified the kind of fire that was to be used, that settled it? They were never, ever to take that fire from any other source than that. And therefore, when God had specified before, although this might actually have been a matter in biblical silence, God had already affirmed all that they needed. And this silence was a thing in condemnation. So if you do anything other than what God has asserted or authorized, He condemns it. Let me say that again. Whatever is not specifically authorized is condemned. Now, it is the case with regard to that one. You and I have learned a valiant lesson. This fire was strange because God hadn't commanded it, and because He hadn't commanded it, it was wrong. You can now make applications. Go back to the yard sale matter. New Testament doesn't say a word about having a yard sale to supply the needs or the particulars of the finances of the church. But it did say in 1 Corinthians 16 how those needs were to be met. So if we do it any other way, 
That's, that, that's condemned, isn't it? It would not be right for the Pippin Church to have a yard sale here and to send those monies into the treasury of the church that has nowhere been authorized. Now, keeping that principle in mind, let's look at yet another one. The Ark of the Covenant. As we go forward in the Old Testament, we encounter this amazing scene. The Ark of the Covenant, of course, was that specific piece of furniture. It was the centerpiece of the tabernacle. On top of it was the mercy seat, and there's where God promised to meet with Israel, Exodus 25, 11. But you and I note this. God had given order and commandment not only who, but how that ark was to be moved. It had staves in it, and those staves were to be employed to, to in fact, move it. And only members of the tribe of Levi, the Kohathites exactly, were ordered to be the ones that move it. At that point, we could ask this. So God said that was the way it was to be done. What if some other alternative was offered? After all, it's heavy. What if I load it on a cart and let a mule pull it? Would that be okay? What if I load it on the back of a camel and let the camel move it? Would that be all right? Well, you and I are not left to wonder what did later happen. As you read in 1 Chronicles chapters 13 to 15, you find the following interesting scene. It was one in which David was the man reigning as king over Israel. David had this brilliant idea. He wanted to consolidate the civil government center with the religious center. He wanted the tabernacle in Jerusalem. Now, there wasn't anything wrong with wanting the tabernacle in Jerusalem, but could we offer this? In what way should they have moved the Ark of the Covenant from its current location in the household of Abinadab over to Jerusalem? Well, you and I aren't left to wonder. We know exactly. Levites should have carried it with staves from the place it currently was to the placement in Jerusalem. However, they had a different idea. They thought that they could move it perhaps more conveniently, somewhat differently. And not only that, they even had other people besides the Levites to try to do it. The time came that Uzzah reached out and touched that ark with his hand. And he died. Now maybe you and I have often thought, here was a man trying to do something good, salvaging the integrity of the ark. He reached out and touched it and God killed him. Could we say this? Uzzah was not authorized to touch it. He was not of the Kohathites. Furthermore, it was riding upon an, on a cart. It was not being carried with staves in the way that God commanded could I invite you to note this? In First Chronicles 15, David finally understood what it was that happened. And he lamented the fact that they had erred. One more time, isn't it true that God's silence was restrictive? What he hadn't authorized was condemned. Lest you and I make some of those applications to today. As we transition to the next slide and go to the New Testament... I'm going to invite you to consider four brief passages. And as we look at each one of them, keep the idea of biblical silence in mind, would you? We'll start in 1 Corinthians chapter 4. As we come to that chapter, we'll not read certainly near all of it, but could I invite you to notice at least one verse, verse number 6. 1 Corinthians 4, verse number 6. 
The church in Corinth, as we probably remember, was beset with a few challenges or difficulties. And in the midst of that presentation, Paul, by inspiration, had these words to say. And these things, brethren, I have in a figure transferred to myself and to Apollos for your sakes, that ye might learn in us not to think of men above that which is written, that no one of you be puffed up for one against another. First of all, among the problems that the church in Corinth was suffering, Paul says, I want you to note this, myself and Apollos first have applied to ourselves these things we have taught you. In other words, the preacher abode by what was being preached. The preacher isn't above what's being preached either. Paul said, myself and Apollos, we are trying to live out what we are asserting to you. And here's the idea. Verse 6, that you might learn in us not to think of men above that which is written. If you'd like to underline that phrase, that which is written, that highlights a powerful truth. Corinthians, you must never exalt and go beyond what's written. The authority in completeness is found in what's written. We'll go back to our examples again. What about taking the Lord's Supper on Friday? That's not written anywhere. And yet Paul said you must never go beyond what's written. When it comes to the Lord's Supper, isn't it true? We are told that upon the first day of the week in Acts 20 verse 7, those disciples came together to break bread. It was on Sunday that they took the Lord's Supper. That is our apostolic example. That is our New Testament authority. No more has been given, and therefore any other day of the week would be wrong. Any other day of the week would be an error. That farmer may have thought that he had a, a great idea. Take that Lord's Supper on Friday. Therefore, I won't have to gather with the saints on Sunday, maybe. But he would be wrong in even thinking that sort of thing. He would be failing to appreciate the principle of biblical silence. As you look at that 1 Corinthians 4, verse 6 passage, you notice it says, not to think above that which is written. I began the lesson this morning by inviting you to notice how special that book is. You and I must never think that there's authority for anything that's not written. It never comes in a dream. It doesn't matter how brilliant you and I may suppose the idea to be. If it is not written here, there's no authority for it. And you and I must not do it. Now, may I say in that light, that gives us an impression, doesn't it, how special this book is. It's for this reason that many through the ages have, at this point, made a strong deviation. If I could be so brief is to say it, the idea of biblical silence has been the main thing that has separated the church of Christ from all the other religious organizations. For instance, those who have mechanical instruments in their worship, there's not a single verse that authorizes it, but they think that doesn't condemn it. They think it's still all right. Well, you and I know better because the Bible doesn't authorize it. That condemns it. It does not make it all right. What if we look at the next example? The second one. Come with me to Colossians chapter 2. The same kind of biblical silence is a matter that raised a matter for consideration among the church in Colossae. 
In the second chapter of that book, we encounter the following statement. I'll begin reading in verse number 18. Let no man beguile you of your reward at a voluntary humility and worshiping of angels, intruding into those things which he hath not seen, vainly puffed up in his fleshly mind, and not holding the head from which all the body by joints and bands having nourishment ministered and knit together increaseth unto the increase of God. Wherefore, if ye be dead with Christ from the rudiments of the world, why, as though living in the world, are ye subject to ordinances? Touch not, taste not, handle not, which all are to perish with the using, after the commandments and doctrines of men, which things have indeed a show of wisdom and will-worship, and humility and neglecting of the body, not in any honor to the satisfying of the flesh. Historically, the church in Colossae had begun to dabble in these errors known as Gnosticism. There were individuals who had come in and said, I've got a special knowledge. I'd like to impart that knowledge to you now. You don't have it. I do now. And here's some things that you need to appreciate about my knowledge and my wisdom. And you need to make sure to incorporate it. And this involved things like angels, verse 18. It involved things like intruding into things they didn't understand. Now comes the point. God had not said anything anywhere about worshiping angels. So is it wrong or is it right? By the time the book of Colossians was written, well, you and I know it's wrong, for we're told... Of course, by appreciation, God and He alone is to be worshipped. What about those other things intruding into what you, didn't, you don't understand? Well, they in Colossae had begun to develop that, to at least think there might be something to it. So, could we burn incense as a part of worship? Would that be okay? If we at the Pippin Church thought today, wouldn't it be a wonderful fragrance and would it give, not give an aura of tremendous spirituality if we had some incense burning in here as a part of the worship. Would that be all right? Now, most in our world would say, well, if you think it encourages worship, it's fine. It would be absolutely wrong because God has not authorized that as a part of worship today. We begin to see the point. What He hasn't authorized, He has specifically condemned. Example number three will be this one. Let's transition to the next one. This one, it would seem to me, perhaps, is the high water mark of settling in our mind this principle of biblical silence. Could I invite you to come to Hebrews chapters 7 and 8 with me? You may notice earlier that the lesson text was read as a verse from chapter 7 and then a second one from chapter 8. To provide at least a little bit of the background for it, I think this ought to completely settle any consideration relative to biblical silence. Transition with me, at least in your mind, back to the Old Testament. Who was to serve as the priests? And you and I are quick to answer, we know that. It was a tribe of Levi. May I ask this question? What about men of the tribe of Reuben? Men of the tribe of Gad? Men of the tribe of Asher? men of the tribe of Naphtali, and Zebulun, and all the others. There was not a word in the Old Testament. No man of Zebulun is to ever serve as a priest. There's no verse like that. There's no verse that said no man of Reuben is to ever serve as a priest. 
no verse like that. The only verse we had was Levites are in fact to serve as priests. What did that mean? So if God was silent about Zebulonites serving as priests, did He accept it or did He not? Let's let Hebrews chapter 7 give us the answer. I'll begin reading in verse number 11. If therefore perfection were by the Levitical priesthood, for under it the people received the law, what further need was there that another priest should arise after the order of Melchizedek and not be called after the order of Aaron? For the priesthood being changed, there is made of necessity a change also of the law. For he of whom these, tri these things are spoken pertaineth to another tribe, of which no man gave attendance at the altar. Biblical silence was restrictive. The inspired writer said so. God said specifically that that tribe, the Levites, were to serve as the priests and that immediately forbade all others. And that meant God never had to say anything about the Zebulonites or the Asherites or the Reubenites or any others. When He specified the tribe of Levi that eliminated all the others... I think, by and large, you and I are very familiar with that principle. If you tell your son or daughter, I want you to go to Walmart and bring me back one fishing rod, one gallon of milk, and one loaf of bread. What if little Johnny comes back with those three plus a sack of Reese cups? Did he obey you? What if he says, but I brought you back what you asked me? When I gave you the list of three that forbade everything else. Well, that's the way you and I understand it. That's the way God intended it. That's the way He, in fact, presented that truth as well. On this occasion, chapter 8, verse number 4, then puts it like this. For if He were on earth, He should not be a priest, seeing that there are priests that offer gifts according to the law. The Hebrew writer even asserted if Jesus Christ Himself were serving under the Levitical priesthood, even He couldn't be a priest because He was not of the right tribe. He sprang out of Judah, Hebrews 7, 14. Doesn't that then lead us to note this? What God doesn't authorize, He condemns. And that eliminates then those things that you and I noted at the outset of our lesson today. But it brings us to one final passage. And we'll use it to close our lesson this morning. In the little one-chapter book of 2 John, 2 John, verses 9 through 11, you may recall that this little epistle was addressed to a, certainly a, take care of a very serious consideration. The verse reads like this, "...whosoever transgresseth and abideth not in the doctrine of Christ hath not God." He that abideth in the doctrine of Christ, he hath both the Father and the Son. If there come any unto you, and bring not this doctrine, receive him not into your house, neither bid him Godspeed, for he that biddeth him Godspeed is partaker of his evil deeds. There was a phrase that occurred in verse 9. Whosoever transgresseth, and that word literally means to go beyond, to go onward. And so the inspired writer says, whoever goes beyond those boundaries, those limitations of the doctrine of Christ, that person does not have Christ, 
and he doesn't have God either. Biblical silence. Notice to go beyond the doctrine of Christ, to go beyond what's written, to go beyond what has been authorized. That led me to make those final comments. It's as if you and I can picture it like this. The Word of God identifies almost like a picture of a fence. When you and I remain within the boundaries of that fence, the doctrinal considerations within it, we are then in the safe confines of what God has authorized. If we step beyond the fence to what He hadn't authorized, He condemns it. Because what He doesn't authorize, He condemns. We've seen six examples of that so far this morning. Two in the Old Testament, four in the New. As you and I come to the statement of conclusion on our last slide this morning, I've tried to highlight this has been the take-home message for each of us. That which God doesn't authorize, He condemns. That has happened in all six examples. And today, isn't it powerful that four of them relate to you and me in the New Testament? God's Word does present His law. And so, when it comes to mechanical instruments of music, when it comes to anything else, it doesn't matter what it is. If He doesn't authorize it, we must avoid it. And we must never give our approval to those who do it. That's true in regard to the plan of salvation, to the worship and what's involved in it, to the other features and aspects of the ongoing life of the church. The last statement on the slide then is this. The Bible is not silent about the matter of biblical silence. Because what God doesn't authorize, of course, He condemns. Today, as you and I have studied this lesson, maybe as we analyze ourselves, it has re-embedded in our thinking the importance of the Word of God and our complete obedience to it. It could be that there is one or more of the audience today who is in need of a public response to the gospel's invitation. When you respond to the gospel, you aren't coming to our elders or to me. You're coming to Jesus. He's the one that died for you. He's the one who shed blood for you. He's the one who purchased the church. He's the one who, in fact, is reigning at the right hand of God currently. He's the one that can save you. We're only blessed here to be those who try to do that which is His will and to encourage you. To anyone in the audience who's not become a Christian today, you've got to believe in Jesus with all of your heart. Believing Jesus to be the Son of God, repent of your sins, confess His name, and be baptized. It is in that act that you are come into Christ. Galatians 3.27 If you, though, have become a Christian, and maybe you have known the blessedness of life in Christ, and you lived in a faithful way, and you knew all the wonderful rewards that came with it, but for whatever set of reasons there may be, You've chosen to live in a wayward way, in an unfaithful way, in a way that has brought reproach upon yourself, upon the church, even upon Christ. Understand that whatever God hasn't authorized, He condemns. And He has told each of us what you need to do to come back to your first love. You've got to repent of those sins. You've got to make confession of them. And then God has promised to forgive and we'll be delighted to pray to God on your behalf if they're known in a public way. Today, if we could help you, encourage you, if we could assist you in some one of these ways, we would encourage you to come now while together we stand and while we sing.